0: From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, April 22nd. Happy Earth Day to all who celebrate. Today, I'm joined by our roundtable regulars to discuss old school activist investor Carl Icahn, emerging as a new school activist ESG investor. Imogen Rose-Smith is an Impact Alpha contributing editor. Hi, Imogen.
1: Hi, Brian. Happy Earth Day.
0: Thank you. And David Bank is Impact Alpha's editor and CEO. Hi, David. Hey, Brian, and
2: hey, Imogen, and we'll have some cuts from this week's Agents of Impacts call on climate
0: adaptation financing. Looking forward to that. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. This week, Impact Alpha featured a pair of guest posts about two efforts in Mexico that engage indigenous peoples in land restoration, or should we say earth restoration, along with shared prosperity. One example is Ajito Verde, which is planting regenerative pine resin trees on a 25-year plan to reforest degraded landscapes. A century ago, black farmers in the U.S. represented 14% of all farmers. Today, it's just 1.4%. So in New York State, the community-led Black Farmer Fund aims to shape the state's food system by providing flexible capital for black farmers and black food entrepreneurs so they can set their own financing terms. VC Include is seeding 10 emerging climate fund managers. Through their climate justice initiative, Taj Eldridge and Bahia Robinson are distributing $100,000 grants to 10 diverse managers who are tapping talent and solutions in black and brown communities. Among the recipients are Supply Change Capital, 22 Fund, and Home Team Ventures. Noted tech investor Chris Saka recently wrote that, quote, there's never been a better time to start a carbon removal company. Case in point, Saka's own lower carbon capital raised a $350 million fund for carbon capture. Investors include the payments company Stripe, which last week announced a $1 billion frontier collaboration to finance carbon removal. And finally, Impact Alpha's Rudy Sonatas brought us the story of Pursuit, a new social enterprise upskilling low income New Yorkers for high paying coding jobs, jobs at companies like Twitter, Uber, and Microsoft. Through an income share agreement, Graduates repay Pursuit when they start making over $60,000 per year. Pursuit graduates have seen their income increase from an average of just $18,000 per year to $85,000. Now it's time to get our roundtable regulars back together for our featured conversation. I'm joined once again by Imogen and David, and we've got a lot to chew on. Let's start with activist investors, which is a term that applies to two types of investors. Historically, an activist investor was also known as a corporate raider. The typical image here is a swashbuckling Wall Street heavyweight who purchased a stake in a public company in order to influence how it's run, with an eye towards maximizing financial returns for themselves and other shareholders, no matter the cost. More recently, the term also applies to those investors who work to improve the ESG performance of listed companies. In Carl Icahn, We now have an example of an old school activist engaging in new school ESG activism. David, why is Carl Icahn back in the news and why does it involve ESG?
2: Well, Brian, the ESG and impact world was abuzz this week with a letter that Carl Icahn sent to the board of McDonald's. Um, It's this part of this board fight um, that he's waging uh, um, around animal welfare. But what was more um, sort of quotable, I would guess, was the sort of broad uh, swing he took at ESG generally. He said, I want to shine a light on what may be the biggest hypocrisy of our time. A large number of Wall Street firms and their bankers and lawyers appear to be capitalizing on ESG to drive profits without doing nearly enough to support tangible societal progress. And he accused them of a cover-up um, that they were downplaying their ESG-related economic incentives in, in order to promote their purported social impact. It was kind of a, a, a broad uh, takedown of, of, of what's become kind of the ESG industrial complex on Wall Street, and he was taking on asset managers who are um, not fulfilling their, their fiduciary responsibilities, um, all as part of this campaign against... Uh, McDonald's, as I say. And if you read between the lines, or not so much between the lines, if, um, it becomes clear that he's really pursuing one specific ESG um, plank, I suppose, uh, around animal welfare and around pigs, gestating pigs, and whether they're kept in crates or not as p- in part of um, you know McDonald's supply chain.
0: So Imogen, now you've covered institutional investors and Carl Icahn for many years. Can you walk us through what he's up to and, and why is he engaging with uh, McDonald's now?
1: So... Th- I love this idea of Carl Icahn as a warrior for like social issues, right? The, I, this this notion that that somehow like you know Wall Street is evil and conniving over ESG, and Carl Icahn's just there fighting the good fight for the pigs is amazing. Um, and you know, if you the first line of his letter is fantastic. It says, you know, at this point in my career, I consider it my responsibility to engage in constructive activism to help rectify glaring injustices perpetuated by many ineffective boards of of directors and management teams leading America's top public corporations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah. It sounds like a call to action for all, you know, right-thinking finance uh, professionals to step up to the plate, no?
1: Well, and then, then he goes on to say that, you know, the, the, the glaring miss in all of this ESG blah, blah, blah that, you know, finance fans have been talking about over the last few years is that none of them care enough about, like, animals and animal welfare, which, you know, is going to come as a shock to Fair and Jeremy Collar and all the work those guys have been doing for the last 10 years. Um, so, but, yeah, you know, to take the step back, Carl Icahn, as many people know, is a sort of legendary corporate raider, who you know, started out as a trader, um, made his name during the sort of heydays of the leverage buyout, Carl um, Michael Milken era, doing leverage buyouts, um, and you know he was sort of notorious for like getting on the phone and yelling at executives. TWA was his best known buyout when he bought the airline and then basically drove it into the ground. He was also involved in RJL Nabisco, which was again sort of searing example of, sort of corporate greed during the 80s and the height of this sort of barbarians at the gate era, um, and was itself, you know, a tobacco company, demonstrating that, you know, nobody cared at the time about, you know, things like tobacco. Um, you know, so I can sort of stood out for his. Willingness to kind of be aggressive. Um, he was sort of, as a like, famous for getting on the phone and yelling at corporate executives. It was like a bad day if Carl Icahn was like amassing a shareholder position in your company. And he's also he's sort of notoriously cheap, which also makes it hilarious because he's actually only bought like something like two hundred shares in McDonald's.
0: So two hundred shares that represents what a, a, about a fifty thousand dollar or so stake at at the current stock value. So not the type of stake you might. Make if you were uh, actually looking to do a uh, more of a, a takeover or, or more serious engagement. Is that fair? Exactly.
1: He's just owning the shares to be able to make his point, you know, at the annual meeting.
0: And here we and here we are,
2: and, and others reporting them.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it works, right? Um. So again, he was very well known in the sort of the greed is good era of leverage buyouts. So and you know, part of part of the leverage buyout playbook was like laying people off and getting rid of pension plans that defined benefit pension plans and stuff like that so there, there's a lot of social criticism about what these kind of investors were doing and a lot of criticism that investors like icon both on the hedge fund side and the private equity side were really just in it for the short-term financial gains that they could make rather than the long-term health and prosperity of companies, which is the complete opposite argument from a sort of an ESG argument. Now, Carl Icahn would probably say that he's always been on the side of shareholders, and he's always been on the side of, you know, attacking bad governance, and that like this is just what Carl Icahn does. So, what's what's different this time around is that he is cloaking his campaign not in a discussion of profitability. In fact, he doesn't really care about profitability. He's concerned about the pigs. He's concerned about the pigs and he's concerned about animal welfare. And that's it.
2: Can I just pick up on that for a second, Imogen? Because what you what you said is really interesting. He's doing this at McDonald's, not on the basis of an economic argument from McDonald's, just like Elon Musk at, at Twitter is not actually making an economic argument over over there and so you've got a set of well-heeled, you know, investors now making essentially social arguments for their for for corporate
1: That's what I think is so interesting is the pendulum has kind of swung and got a complete 180. You know, that there, there was again going back to the 70s and earlier, there was a form of sort of social shareholder activism which was basically, you know, a bunch of well-meaning hippies filing letters with the SEC trying to get corporations to do stuff like you know stop producing napalm and stuff like that right that's that's the sort of social responsible investor community that evolved really out of the activism the anti apartheid South Africa activism movement so those types of investors have been around for a really really long time but they kind of got swatted away because they never really had a lot of they never had much much of a stake in the businesses, they never had much power, and they were making largely social and later on environmental arguments that the whole of Wall Street didn't take seriously. Now, those types of investors, for the most part, are talking are, are putting their arguments in economic terms. So the clearest one is sort of stranded asset risk in fossil fuels, and they're saying, or even on diversity, they're saying, you should do these things because it is good for business. And meanwhile, you have Carl Icahn and Elon Musk out there saying, no, we just, we want to do this because we want to do it. It's not to do with investing. And arguably, you know, again, it's reflective of this deeper underlying social problem we've created where you just have a handful of people who have so much money and so much power that, you know, Elon Musk can wake up one morning and decide to like, you know, mess with Twitter for fun
2: one of the things that that strikes me about the about the mcdonald's case which is interesting is that you know there's going to be a lot of shareholder resolutions at the annual general meetings coming up in the next month or so um, and most of them, you know, some of them might pass, and they'd be seen as sort of indicators of sort of sentiment. But they're all kind of advisory and non-binding. But if you actually elect um, board members, and I have no idea whether Carl Icahn's uh, two board members that he's putting up at McDonald's will win or not, but people are moving to board fights because those actually are binding, and shareholders can elect uh, new directors to the board and presumably change the change the trajectory of the company. So that's a tactical sort of uh, nuance of this. Well,
1: yeah, and it speaks to the success, obviously. Of- number one last year running a campaign against exxon and getting you know three independent board members elect that they selected elected so yeah no look it's i I suspect that you know i can pissed off because wall street isn't taking him as seriously as he would like and he's not wrong by the way that there is you know a lot of hypocrisy in ESG. I'm just not sure that he can really be the, the you know the 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 standard bearer for the anti ESG hypocrisy crap.
0: Is Carl Icon the right person to call out uh ESG hypocrisy?
2: But that's what's fascinating, is that you've now got social issues being the point of the spear of these corporate um I don't know what you call them, you know, in, in Elon Musk's case with Twitter, takeover battles, hostile takeover battles, you know, we can see, you know, hostile takeover battles waged on the front of supposed social purposes. Now you can, you can talk about what Elon Musk's social purposes may or might not be, but just the notion at the, at a structural level that you would take on, that you would try to take a company private and make a hostile takeover bid, not as you said, on a economic basis, but on a, on some kind of notion of a social basis.
1: Yeah, you couldn't do that, like as as a fiduciary, like you couldn't do that, right? Like, you couldn't make the argument that you just want to do this for social reasons, not not economic reasons. But as as an individual, as Elon Musk or Carl Icahn with your own money, you can do whatever you want, right?
0: Right. It, it's hard to do it with uh, OPM or other people's money. Uh, but if you're an, uh, a multi-billionaire, I think Carl Icahn's net worth at Bloomberg puts at over $23 billion. Uh, Elon Musk's uh, net worth is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. So they, they are able to uh, kind of use their own capital to engage in these kind of issues in, in a way that uh, typically uh, if an activist investor in the, 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 the making of, uh, if you will, engine number one, they did it with other people's money. They were able to launch their campaign by engaging a broad set of investors and getting other institutional shareholders who have a fiduciary duty on their side. So they were able to make the economic case. But here, Icon is making in somewhat a, if you will, a personal case, a, 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 a his personal preference um, uh, for, for the CSG issue.
2: He tries to make a, a risk mitigation, a corporate risk exposure argument about supply chains. He tries to make a climate, you know, adaptation or climate mitigation um, argument about the yeah, dangers of so that corporate God's agriculture.
1: Really in it, right. I mean, for him, it's very much about the pigs in the cages and the horrible conditions. And, you know, my understanding is, is that it was his daughter who, who drew his attention to this.
2: And McDonald's previous pledges, which have not apparently, according to Icon at least, been fulfilled, which does also point up, you know, the notion that these commitments and these pledges often get made, you know, either under pressure or in the heat of the moment or what have you. The follow up and the accountability for fulfilling those pledges sometimes lacking.
0: Yeah, the pledges make headlines. The the lack of follow up years later. Uh, doesn't unless you have someone like Carl Icahn who who decides to shake things up
1: now in the case of Musk though I mean what's one of the things that's significant there is that while he might have hundreds of billions of dollars himself You know that most that that money is not liquid Um, And he's made it clear that he isn't planning on putting all of the money up himself Um, and he plans on getting loans from somewhere Um, And, you know, we'll see if he really comes up with the funds. But what's, what's, again, striking about Musk and Musk's popularity is so much of it is driven by retail shareholders. He very much plays to the retail crowd. Like, he doesn't care about, like, what Wall Street thinks. He likes talking directly to shareholders. And, you know, I think if you remember when he was trying to take Tesla private, his idea was that shareholders would kind of go along for the ride and convert into sort of private holdings and so again his his sort of fan base slash investor base is so retail driven that it allows him to to he's not again relying on the sort of the plodding boring institutional investors who have to care about things like you know fiduciary duty and universal ownership he can like you know pitch it to the Tesla Bros, um, and that's a natural investor base for him. And And again, they don't have the same obligations in terms of how they think about the world. They can just do it because they think it's fun.
2: Well, and then you get to sort of the, you know a new kind of shareholder democracy, like you're saying, like like and you know it's sort of previewed in the meme stock phenomena and all kinds of other things where you have to actually you know, sort of almost a public referendum in some way. And and you can see whether some kind of ESG, responsible investing kind of pitch makes sense, whether some kind of libertarian, no censorship, you know, don't tread on me pitch makes sense. And you, you might have like, you know, different kind of camps of investors. That's just like we have different kind of camps in politics.
1: ESG has sort of lost out in the Reddit world, I think, because it's still kind of seen as pious and boring, right? Like, and Elon Musk, is even though again it's batteries and it's things that like are kind of esg you know the the s and the g is so out of whack in terms of what he's doing that it's you know he's popular among like these kind of yeah often more libertarian groups who see shareholder investing as fun and like you know have a dream of getting rich like that's not esg
2: Sorry, and him and his billionaire buddies um, have been taking to outright trashing ESG. Um, um, he, I think he said it was the devil incarnate. I don't know whether it's Mark Andreessen or, or quoting Peter Thiel, who said it was like the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, there's there's kind of a they're they're taking they're taking a Carl Icahn is saying they're not living up to ESG. The, the companies are not living up to ESG. These other guys out in Silicon Valley are saying, um, you know, you know, you know, screw ESG.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, we talk about this all the time. They look at Silicon Valley and governance. They hate it, right? They want to have all the ownership and all the power and, you know, make all the money.
2: I always feel um obliged to point out at this point in the conversation that um some of the early investors in Tesla were so-called impact funds there was something called the Bay Area Equity Fund which later became DBL Partners um and still have a stake in Tesla but um that they were uh, an explicit um impact fund that had um you know foundation investors under program related investments the whole nine yards for of the impact world were the early investors in Tesla um uh, as an impact play
1: which kind of goes back to what i was saying is that it's the, it's the world's done an entire 180 right you now have carl icon you know saying he's he's the true esg and you know, elon musk looking like you know effectively a corporate writer
0: what a tangled web we weave. I think that's a good place to leave it for now. But before we go, uh, David, there was also uh, an important call this week on climate adaptation. Can you talk us through some of the highlights from there?
2: Well, we dug in. We dug in deep, and in the, in the IPCC reports earlier this year, you know, called out the need for you know adaptation. Climate changes here; the adaptation, you know, is should be well underway, um, but it's lagged in the financing, even as regards to climate mitigation of you know actually reducing the carbon. Um, which is also not adequate, but climate adaptation financing is really not adequate. So we decided to like, take a look at it, and um, we caught up with Jay Co, Lightsmith Group. Um, they've raised the first or one of the first private equity growth funds around climate adaptation and climate resilience. Um, here's what he said. I think the commercial
3: capital flow, the trillions of dollars we're talking about, are not going to be supplied by kind of artisanal sort of farm-to-table approaches. Um, We need to scale dramatically incentives. And if the economy is coin operated, let's put coins in it and have it operate. So shifting the incentives for people to act in their best interest uh, to do that by looking at data, looking at analytics, looking at solutions and scaling them, I think is our best chance to shift the bulk of the economy. You know, there are many solutions out there. The, The one thing I think that was said very early on was this is an enormous opportunity. So to those agents of impact that are out there. You know, come to the Adaptation Climate Resilience universe, uh, start companies, scale companies, come and invest uh, in the Adaptation and Climate Resilience uh, opportunity because it is an enormous opportunity. The entire future will continue to change forever now because climate change will continue to unfold through the end of the century. And the question is, what choices do we make? What technologies do we invest in? What investments are we scaling to address those questions?
2: Because those questions will continue to come. And I want to leave us with Ben Janga from Apollo Agriculture in Nairobi, Kenya. When we were digging into this in preparation for the call, um, I asked an expert um, how would we how to scale up climate adaptation, and he said. Uh, uh, build a hundred or a thousand Apollo agricultures um, and they've got uh, integrated kind of strategy to help farmers plant better seeds get better irrigation um, get better data analytics get crop insurance and then get financing for all of this um, turns out that he grew up on a farm his mother um, still has a farm and here's what he told us about some of the real world of getting farmers to adapt
3: Yeah, for sure, David. And uh, I can say, like, uh, my mom has improved in terms of her farming methods. I had to also take a different approach in terms of training her, not me going and telling her that you need to do this, you need to do this. But I had to actually have my own farm and be able to show her on how to be able to farm better, right? Because that is how farmers change their mindset. They believe by seeing and uh, actually seeing
2: it in practical sense. Once again, that was Ben Jenga from Apollo Agriculture in Kenya. And you can see him and all the speakers on the call on our video replay. Uh, And you can get to that, obviously, through Impact Alpha and uh, the brief.
0: All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. Thank you so much to Imogen.
1: Thank you, Brian. Thank you, David.
0: And thank you to David. It's always great to be with both of you. Thanks. And thanks, as always, to our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. For more, subscribe to get full access to Impact Alpha and The Daily Brief. Right now, we're offering podcast listeners $100 off their first year subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100. I'm Brian Walsh, head of sustainability for the capital markets firm TPI Cap. Until next time, take good care.